You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. The lectionary can sometimes be a funny thing. We last had the Ten Commandments come up as a reading on October 4th. As we move toward the end of our tour through a three-month-long series of stories from Genesis and Exodus, And now, just four months later, here they are again. A quick recap of the setting for these commandments, called the Ten Words in Judaism. Having fled enslavement in Egypt, the Hebrews have crossed the Red Sea, held a great celebration, and then began to look around at the desert wilderness. What the heck, Moses? We'll starve out here. We were better off back in Egypt, slavery and all. Yet, steadfastly, food is provided for them. Gradually, they have made their way to the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses ascends that mountain, comes into the presence of God, who he experiences as thunder, lightning, thick clouds, shaking ground, and a blasting trumpet. Moses is in the presence of the holy as a point of contact between that God and a people down below at the foot of the mountain who are still very much in formation as a new people, as a people together. There in that place, Moses is given these commandments. And they are what will begin to shape and form those folks down there as a people. There are a good many other commandments in the Torah as well, over 600 more. But these 10 have a particular place as as the heart or the kernel of the law. Now if you want to dig into them further and think about what they might have meant for that ancient people and what they still might mean for us, You need only pick up John Boddicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments Are Good News, a book that we serialized in podcast format, released over the course of the fall and early winter. I'm not going to try to do justice to John's book here and now, but just offer this central insight when he writes, I have come to acknowledge the Ten Commandments as offering us a better, truer path of freedom. Freedom. What might seem like only limitation, you shall not this, you shall not that, is in fact meant to set a framework within which true freedom, a deeper freedom, is possible. As John understands it, Among other things, these commandments are meant to give us freedom for imagination, for listening, freedom to rest and to joy, freedom for life together, for intimacy, for friendship. Oh, 
And this freedom is cultivated and experienced together, not as my freedom, but as our freedom. You can consider a very current example as you think about that. We are now living in this society with a new commandment that says, thou shalt wear a face mask in public indoor spaces. It's not meant as some arbitrary limit on your freedom of expression, facial expression, that is. Nor is it meant to say that the display of your nose and mouth and chin in public has somehow now become shameful. Rather, this is a law about the freedom to be together in public indoor spaces in relative safety. And it's not a law about me, it's a law about all of us. But we're a funny bunch, we humans. We easily miss what lies at the heart of things, like the commandments, and choose a kind of legalism over the spirit of what the law brings us. In her book, An Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor writes about how, as a child growing up in the American South, She absolutely dreaded Sundays. That was the day you weren't allowed to do anything. Boredom had become the order of the day, not a freedom to rest, a freedom to enjoy. Boredom limits nothing. In a very real way, I believe something like this dynamic that Jesus is symbolically cleansing from the temple in tonight's reading. I believe he wants to challenge a narrow reading of the temple laws and practices, a narrow reading that actually obscures the temple's truer purpose. Now, interesting to note that John places this incident at a different point in the story than do Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple comes right after Jesus has come entering into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the donkey. The first place he goes to is to the temple, where he discovers it has been turned into this kind of marketplace. And he does this action to toss them out, to push them out, to challenge them. And in the reading of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is that event that really triggers the hostility of those who are in authority and who Jesus threatens. In John's gospel, it's very close to the beginning. It's actually his very first public act. There is the story of the wedding feast of Cana, the water into wine, and then straight to this story. John often does that. He will order things differently or focus his camera differently, tell a slightly different story. The Last Supper, he doesn't talk about bread and wine. He talks about foot washing. So as he places this story right up front, I suspect what he's wanting us to do is say, now look at that event and look at how that actually tells us something about the whole of Jesus' life and ministry. So watch. My father's house, Jesus calls the temple in this reading. Not that Jesus was suggesting that God actually lived there or could be contained there, but rather that the whole of that grand building 
and all that it contained was meant to stand as a symbol of the connection between the heavens and the earth, between the creator and the creation, as a place to be recalled to God through the practice of offering and sacrifice and prayer, and by the very structure itself, filled with symbols and of a grand scale. The Temple of Jesus' day was a massive rebuild undertaken by Herod's father, actually. A massive rebuild of a temple from the early 500s BCE. And that one had actually been a replacement for the original Solomon's temple after it had been destroyed at the time of the Babylonian exile. Jesus entered the temple, the gospel tells us. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. So what is that marketplace anyway? The merchants are selling the various animals required for offerings. Meanwhile, others are exchanging Roman coins, the coins of day-to-day trade, for Jewish coins, because you needed Jewish coins to buy your dove for an offering because you weren't to be using that debased Roman currency to buy a pure animal. It was one-stop shopping. Never mind that the exchange rate they're charging to trade your coins is like doing a currency exchange at the airport. Like that's the worst possible place to do the exchange, but it's so convenient. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. There's something else at stake here as well, which isn't visible unless you know something about the architecture of the temple. It's actually hinted at in the story as told by the other three gospel writers. There Jesus said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You have made it a den of robbers." a house of prayer for all the nations, by which Jesus was actually pointing to the architecture. At the heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where only the appointed priests could enter. And then outside of that, the court of priests, and then the court of men, Jewish men, the court of women, open to Jewish women, men, and children. And finally, at the outside, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, which was open to all. It is this court of the Gentiles that the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts would have been able to enter as he tried to seek out the meaning of the writings of the prophet Isaiah and offered whatever prayers he could. It's in this court, open to all, 
that's been turned into a marketplace. For the sake of selling animals for offering and exchanging Roman coinage for Jewish coinage, supposedly for purity's sake, one of the core pieces of ancient Israel's identity was being squandered, namely their call to be a sign for all peoples. And so a twisted adherence to the letter of the law caused the deeper meaning of the nation and its temple to be submerged and debased. And so showing a passion and anger that might still startle us a bit, making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them out of the temple, poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables with a holy and prophetic anger. In John's telling, though, there is even more. As Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, by which he was speaking not of the stone and mortar temple, but rather of his own self. Here, N.T. Wright comments, Jesus is the true temple. He is the word made flesh, the place where the glory of God has chosen to make his dwelling. The Jews had ancient traditions about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt. It had happened before, and some thought it would happen again. Jesus takes the traditions and applies them to himself. He is the reality to which the temple itself points, connecting point between the heavens and the earth, between creator and creation, between God and us. Chances are, right after Jesus and his disciples left the court of the Gentiles, the merchants and the money changers simply righted the tables, gathered up the coins, led the animals back into the court. Chances are pretty good Jesus knew they were going to do that because he knew human nature. In another 30 years, that great temple would be no more, destroyed by the Romans in response to an uprising on the part of the people. But our temple, our temple, who is the Word made flesh, the empire tried to destroy him as well. But just as the commandments are meant to be about more than just restrictions, meant in their spirit to free us into a deeper and truer freedom, Christ is more than the body they tortured to death on the cross. That death was but the beginning of a new story for Jesus and for all of us. In him, there is no need for a court of the Gentiles, for his temple, his body, encompasses us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. 
For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.